You're listening to Radio ISO, the podcast bringing you notes from isolation and stories about the people we're missing. I'm your host, Emily Sargent. Today I spoke to Mark, a doctor who's been working on the front line of the pandemic in the UK and who's missing his parents in Wales. geriatric and general medicine so general adult medicine uh, and I work in a London hospital um, which is one of the hospitals as most hospitals in London have been is at the forefront of COVID. I am managing two wards of COVID patients which is around 40 to 50 people um, and they're all in, in these two wards that are basically closed to any other type of case. We're okay, actually, because uh, we had this big debate when all of this kicked off because sort of uh, I being in my job, I knew that it was going to happen a little bit before it did. Uh, in, you know, in I share an office with military physicians as well, um, and they were talking about it because they had some of the first cases that came into the UK and people were going, oh, God, this is going to be awful. This is going to be like major, major. Um, and uh, Anika's pregnant at the moment again, which is oh, great. Congratulations! Uh, but then, obviously, they said, "Well, thank you, thanks." Uh, so she's uh, about twenty weeks now. Um, and at the time, we were debating what the best plan was because they'd said, "Oh, well, look, pregnancy's a risk," and the evidence on the scientific side is that probably it's a low risk. Um, but I was sort of like, well, a low, even a low risk is a risk. Mm. So we were debating whether she goes up to stay with her parents in Scotland or to stay with my parents in Wales. Um, and in the end, she decided that she wanted to stay here with Hamish as well. And I am so glad that they did because I think it would be so difficult to like go through it all and be totally on your own in the house. It must be nice for you if you're having these traumatic days to be able to be with your family at the end of them. Yeah, well, we we had like a big, a real big debate about it because I think in the end it came down to the fact that I'd already been seeing quite a few uh, cases of it in hospital, uh, even from as early as like the beginning of March. Mm. And um, I thought, well, look, there's a good chance I've been exposed to it already. We thought, well, then she might you know fly all the way to scotland with hamish and then give it to her parents or if she went to wales give it to my parents and they're approaching 70 mm. uh so in the end we thought well probably the lower risk is is to stay here but yeah how did it feel when you were hearing about those first few cases really over the course of about two weeks it went from like occasionally seeing people with it to suddenly everyone had it you know 95 percent of people had it um, and those few that didn't then turned out to have it further down the line. What's the atmosphere like? Tense, like really tense, actually. Um, I think, you know, everyone goes into medicine expecting to see tragedies occasionally, but it feels very relentless at the moment. And I 
I keep having to remind myself, even I have to keep reminding myself, you know, I am in my thirties. I uh, am not, I don't have any chronic illnesses. If I got this, it would be very low risk. And we are seeing lots of people come in and go home and be discharged. Though mm. obviously being in a hospital, you also see the worst cases and the most severe. Mm. And I think, you know, a few of my colleagues who are approaching retirement, who are in their early 60s, who might have underlying health conditions, are genuinely really frightened about going in and seeing people with COVID with the protective equipment that we've got. There's a little bit of fatalism as well, because everyone sort of seems just resigned to getting it at this stage, because of my colleague, I'd say probably 50-60% of the hospital at least have caught it since it started. Um, I mean, that's just a, a guess, but just in terms of my peers, uh, I'm a misnomer in that I have not had any symptoms of it yet. So how how is that for you at the moment, not being able to necessarily have that face-to-face contact with relatives or for the patients not to be able to as well? It's really surreal, actually. It's um, horrible. Uh, I mean, we've the policies have changed and sometimes people are being allowed to visit at the very end of life but it's really you know even then you're geared up in all this equipment and you've got this really short visiting window mm. so a lot of it is done over the phone or using iPads or WhatsApp calls and it's odd you know you can have this fairly frank and intimate you would never have dreamed of having those conversations over the phone in the past. You know, you'd always called someone in to sit down and speak to them face to face because I don't know, you're far better able to deal with the cues and support people mm-hmm. when you can see how they're adapting in terms of their body language and that's mm-hmm. the way we're taught to deal with these kind of really horrible emotional situations. And I I think it's also a lot harder because it, um, uh, you, you're trained to deal with tragedy in medicine and you're trained to deal to break bad news and to um, you know experience really difficult times and be there to support people but the there are always going to be those cases that stand out for you and sometimes that's because it has a parallel with something that's going on in your own life or sometimes it's just the the raw emotion of it and I think because we're in the same society that everybody else is. You know, I come home to Anika, I'm speaking to my, you know, I haven't seen my parents in, in months now. And then you see people break, you know, their their parents dying and them on the phone. And it's just, it's really hard because it it feels, everything feels so precarious. You feel so much that it, it could so easily be you. Mm-hmm. Um and that makes it more difficult to be the supportive doctor rather than personally involved. My personal feeling on it is no one wants to see me break down into floods of tears as um, you know people say goodbye to each other. I should just be there to provide the advice and the support that they need. I'm sure people have heard quavering voice on the phone, that kind of thing. Uh, certainly there was a, a time one of the first cases where someone was passing away and they were on the phone to their wife and daughter um, and I was in the room, was obviously all geared up, holding the, the mobile for him to use. And they he was dying and he 
told them he was dying and they said they loved him and they said that they would like to come and see him. Uh, and he said he didn't want them to come and see him because he didn't want to risk them catching it. Uh, and, you know, and then they were just telling each other they loved them, uh, loved each other. And, you know, then you hang up the phone and he looked at me and said, oh, let me go now. And it was just horrible. And it was really hard to then when the daughter was asking, you know, how did he die? and What happened to then to then speak to her like honestly and there's all these things where you have to relay messages to people and you know walk in and say you know your son says he loves you or and it's hard because it's not necessarily normally the kind of thing we're doing I mean maybe we should be more emotionally engaged normally um but it's a it's a strain definitely home is incredibly important and having Anika and Hamish here you know that they didn't go away is is really useful because there's there's a normality to it you know i'm i'm you can sort of in the evenings trick yourself into thinking it's not going on you know you turn on netflix or you play some games with hamish and he's young enough that he's oblivious to it all obviously which is is really nice there's all these support things for the nhs which uh when they first started i thought oh these are all a bit silly you know clapping for the nhs and uh you know people delivering us easter eggs and things but actually it, it does it does make a difference. I'd be lying if I said it. It didn't. So you've not seen your parents for you said it was months, but when was the last time that you that you saw them in person? Beginning of January, I would say. Um, yeah, I think it was the beginning of January. So uh, just after Christmas, we went up there to spend Christmas with them um you know like a delayed christmas um and that was that was really nice you know we went to to wales and stayed with them there uh they live in a village in the middle of nowhere since hamish has been born um about 17 months ago i've seen them a lot more um because obviously you know they want to spend time with their grandson yeah and i really want him to get to know them as well and them to be part of his life so yeah certainly we've we've probably Every month and a half, we've made the effort to go back or at least um, meet halfway in the middle. And how would you describe your parents? They're very kind, generous people. Um, my father is very, very Welsh, even though he would uh, deny it to his teeth. Uh, <laughs> he's from the valleys, so he's got a... He says my impression is poor, but it's absolutely incredibly accurate when I say this is what his voice sounds like. And... <laughs> um, uh, and <laughs> I suppose we're we're very close as a family. We're not necessarily like physically hugely affectionate. Um, you know, my dad might give you the occasional pat on the shoulder, but uh, it, his blood pressure shoots through the roof if you ever try to hug him. Um, <laughs> and um, my mum is just very, very, very supportive. Very uh, Anika. My wife thinks she's one of the nicest people she's ever met. She's always baking mm. cakes and, you know, buying things for Hamish and ringing to make sure we're okay. Uh, although she's very, very emotional as well. Whereas my dad is this, <laughs> you know, we're very male in that he tries to mm. mask all emotions. My mum, if I ever say anything about work being difficult, she's in tears before I've even uh, <laughs> even said anything more. Does she say 
that she's worried about you. Yeah, she does. She says she's worried all the time. And I sort of try to keep reassuring her and saying, look, well, actually, if I get it, I'm in one of the best positions I could be. But I have said, well, look, if I got sick, I wouldn't want you to come and visit me. Um, I'd speak to you on the phone and things, but I, I wouldn't want you to come into the hospital because it must be something really hard when that when that opportunity is offered to you and it's someone you love. What um what sort of stuff when you go to visit them in Wales? What kind of things do you typically do together? They they love cooking. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always an abundance of food and an abundance of chocolate the moment you get through the door um when i normally i'm driving back is how i tend to go back to cardiff and we'll ring them when we're about an hour away and the first question will always be what do you want for dinner what do you want for dinner and then then we'll get they'll be if you say oh well i'm deciding between these two things they'll have made both (laughs) they'll both be (laughs) on the table um and then uh we tend to go because the village is fairly there's there's not much there in the village that I live. There's like a shop, um, like one little newsagent's and uh, a pub. And that's about it. Mm-hmm. And my father is not a big fan of the pub because he says, well, why would you spend more money to drink outside when you can drink in the comfort of your own home for far less? So he is very keen for us to have a beer when we get back home as well uh and we will we'll do things like we go to the beach we go to um walking in the mountain and things like that do you have a favorite meal or dish that you that your mum or dad cooks when you go home (laughs) uh homemade chips you know i i don't do that here i don't have like a um chip pan so even though it is hardly high cuisine uh, homemade chips and uh, my mum makes cheese and onion pasties as well oh, it yeah. is like proper comfort food but my parents are the opposite when I cook for them I can't put any chili or spice or anything like that in there because that's too exotic and too terrifyingly exciting for them <laughs> but yeah I think they're, they're coping pretty well I think they are anxious about the news as I imagine the majority of the country is where they live now is that the home that you grew up in or was that somewhere else uh most of it were from when i was about 10 years old we were in that house uh and the before that i lived in the neighboring village which to me seemed like an inordinate amount of distance away when my life was uprooted but it's actually (laughs) probably like what a mile down the road (laughs) And how did your memories of the house that they're in still now, if you imagine walking through the door and being back at home, what's the overriding feeling for you of that? Uh, I suppose sort of like relaxation. It feels like a slower pace of life than in London. Um, uh, And certainly feels safer and cleaner if that makes sense not not in terms of like the physical cleanliness of the house but in terms of being surrounded by the countryside rather than being surrounded by the city and do you have any particularly happy memories of um of time spent with your parents either as an adult or when you were younger Uh, from a kid holidays in the caravan my parents were big caravanners um because why on earth would you pay for an expensive hotel when you can have a hotel in your garden that you drive places? <laughs> um, <laughs> so we used to, 
uh, we used to go West Wales and Cornwall all the time. And I loved it until I was about 14. And then I sort of noticed that my friends all went to France and, you know, far-flung places in Europe. And I was really jealous. And then I hated the caravan And until I got to about 1920. And then I loved the caravan again because... Uh, uh, it was retro. I've I've definitely been. Um, I mean, I feel like I keep floating the idea with Kaylee because she's deeply against camping. But I see caravans as like a mid ground where I can be spending a lot of time outside. But it feels a bit less murdery and also less cold. Um, so she's that's something I'm suggesting. Yeah, there were thought. surprisingly few murders when I went caravanning. <laughs> So just before all this started, we had booked a um, like a farmhouse for uh, myself and Mika Hamish, my parents, my brother and his fiance, mm-hmm. and we were all going to go stay out there in West Wales for a few days, and you know had this huge field attached to it and farm animals, so Hamish could look at the sheep and say woof woof, and the pigs and say <laughs> woof woof, and, uh, the chickens and say quack quack. Uh, and I, you know, that was. It's only until that's cancelled that you sort of realise, oh, how much I was looking forward to that. So I think we'll be quick to try and book something like that again and spend some time together as a, a family and let them see Hamish because I do think it's it's like you know I moan about how hard it is for me, but I think it's re- probably really hard to be separated from your grandson because um, he's first grandson for both Anika's parents and my parents. I had this rude awakening in second year where I failed a bunch of exams. I remember my mum driving up to Liverpool from Wales to sit with me and be like, "Let's, you know, let's go through this revision and all this." Um, and she's, she, you know, she's not medical; she's a teacher. But just having there to support me and be around and, you know, cook food and help me live my life as a functioning adult mm-hmm. uh, was really appreciated. And. You know, in in retrospect, and even at the time, I was kind of aware of how major this was because my grandfather was very unwell at the time. Um, And she was very close to her parents. I was quite close to him, but much closer to my grandmother, who died a few years before. And he was very ill. And then it got to the point where it looked like he was going to die. And she was still up in Liverpool and she'd come up to support me. And he did. He did die. during that period um and then i sort of i just sat my research so the dynamic of it shifted a little bit to us well, both supporting each other rather than one way but mm-hmm. um i do look back on that and think what a major sacrifice to have made for me to be there just for something that even though was a huge deal to me actually in the grand scheme of things so so trivial you know to have to resit an exam when it's your father dying um and it's not not like you know it was a big chronic illness and she was pulled away from him or anything it did happen relatively quickly and she had been there frequently before so i don't know it's still uh, i'm very grateful for that whole thing how useful is it to be there when someone dies i mean that's a question that is increasingly difficult to answer because now i'm seeing people you know firsthand dying distant 
mm. uh, their relatives and actually it's made me think that's more important than perhaps I gave it credit for before. Um, but I remember at the time there's this uh, like sculpture in Liverpool, um, Anthony Gormley, uh, another place. It's like, oh, it's in yes. Crosby. It's, you know, essentially all of his artwork, just casts of him. And they're all like looking out across the sea in, in Crosby. And I remember she said that she went there when she got the news that he died and there was like a thunderstorm. And she said it was a really sort of almost spiritual moment seeing that. Mm. Um, and that that place now has like a certain special significance for, for all of us, really, I think, mm. in the family. What have I, I learned from them? I mean, I suppose, corny though it sounds, it's probably those like fundamental values, isn't it? That actually it's generosity and it's uh, supporting people and just generally trying to be kind that... Um, are the important things and I, I've said you know I think we're, we're open with the fact that we, we love each other and um, we'll be there for each other the the things that I haven't spoken to them about would be really difficult logistical things like I do sort of think I should probably have a conversation with my parents about what would happen to my son if both if I died or if Anika died um, and I don't want to have that conversation, even though I, I do have opinions about it, just because I think it's such a traumatic, awful thing to even contemplate. Uh, I just, you know, and knowing how much my my mum would be in floods of tears the moment I even tried to talk about it. Yeah. Um, it's funny because you're, you know, we're in this situation where actually it does become more pressing because there is a risk. Uh, no matter that that is all there is a risk and that's what makes you think about these things and it does bring into question the 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 idea which because i think we've become very separated from the idea of a good death and it's and because it's a really hard thing to have a conversation about and as you say it's upsetting um and to have that conversation forces you to think of a reality without someone who you love but it also feels important because we're now we're just this by by the nature of this situation with people being separated from relatives and thinking about what the best case scenario is for them having essentially dying in a place of comfort and with dignity and yeah i suppose we're treatment in that respect is very different to anything we've had before because um yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm saying this with absolutely no medical experience. It just seems to me that people, the nature of death. No, but is I, being I think I think that's really valid, Em, because yeah, I think that's that's hugely valid because you there's there's this real push to facilitate good deaths, as you say, and it's absolutely a hundred percent justified. But I think it is difficult to address outside of the medical setting because you know I could say well, look, if I died, I would love to die at home and I'd love to be, I'd love my family to be there and I'd love to get to spend time with them. But actually, if I died of COVID, that's something totally different. And actually, I wouldn't want my family there. I mean, I would want my family there personally, emotionally, but I don't know that I would want to expose them to that risk. (laughs) 
Every Thursday evening, since neighbours began coming outside to clap for the NHS, a group of musicians in Cardiff who live next door to one another have come outside to play together. I'd like to thank Robert Plain, Florence Plain, Rosie Biss and Lucy Gould for allowing us to use a clip of one of their spring evening performances to thank key workers. like to tell us about someone you're missing we'd love to hear from you get in touch at radioisopodcast at gmail.com or on instagram at radioisopod <laughs>